Hello, folks, and welcome to another episode of the End of Sport podcast. I'm here with my good friends, Nathan. How are you? I'm doing all right. And Johanna, how are you doing? Hey, I'm doing well. How about you two? I'm doing well. I'm doing incredibly well. There's a lot going on in the semester. It's like at the peak time in our Canadian semester, so it's been uh, it's been a wild one, but but overall pretty good. How are you? Nathan, how how about you? Oh yeah, you're I mean it's it's just a busy time. Um I uh yeah, I'm not I'm not going to get into the weeds on uh <laughs> all the sort of uh logistical, bureaucratic, political, labor related uh aggravations but mm. uh you know it's it's that time in the semester yeah yeah absolutely and the the, the ever expanding war on higher education is is making mm-hmm. issues for all of us so solidarity to anyone out there who is experiencing um strikes there's a lot of strikes happening in canada um or other labor on yeah in the uk um solidarity from us here on on the show with all of you whether you're an academic worker or not um, there's, there's lots of stuff happening. So solidarity there, but we do have a, a fun little episode. Uh, it's just us three again. We're going to do a little bit of a catch up kind of what's happening in sport. A lot of folks liked that at last episode. So it's, it's nice to be back. So let's, I guess, just get right into it. Um, Johanna, what's kind of on your mind in, in the sports world and what are you thinking about lately? So one thing that I've been thinking about a lot, it's it's a little bit of like older news, but um, everything that's been going on with the UCLA gymnastics team, um, I don't think there's been any current developments in the last week or so from what I know, though I could be wrong, um, but just the really, really troubling racism that's come uh, out of the program. And this is a per and, I, and I'll kind of detail it in a second, but this is a program that has been really lauded both by the UCLA gymnastics, uh, sorry, athletic department, which is not a surprise that they would do this, but also they had like spreads and major, major magazines about like black athlete, black excellence and black athlete excellence, excellence to really highlight the diversity of the team and sort of how this is a team that models inclusion and all of these things. And everyone was really, really has been really excited about them. And they've been a, a really strong team for many, many years. Um, but what came out in early January was that there was a, a white member of the team named Alexis Jeffrey, who uh, it has come out that she um, made uh, racial, uh, essentially stated racial slurs, like in a song saying the N-word aloud rather than skipping it. And um, people talked to her about it, and she didn't seem to be very... Um, regretful about it and didn't seem to understand why it was an issue. Um, and a lot of this stuff happened last fall. And then it, people found out that she also made like a list where she ranked the girls on the team, according to their quote unquote ugliness factor with the um, black team members placed at the bottom of this list, like truly absolutely disgusting, yeah. clear evidence of racism. Um, And essentially, and she sort of said, like, you know, this is how I was raised, or I didn't know what was wrong. Um, I didn't know what I did was wrong, but all right. Um, And essentially, like the the play the her teammates tried to talk to her about it for a bit. And then they brought it to the coaches. And then they eventually brought it to the athletic director. And there were a bunch of meetings. And essentially, there was a really uh, good podcast um, uh, by Amanda Seals. Um, where she interviewed two of the black athletes, uh, Mark Zetta Frazier and Sakai Wright, 
um, and, and, and allow them to really say, give their voice and kind of speak about their experiences. And the team and the athletic department sort of tried to handle it, but really botched it. They said they brought in some DEI experts, which we all know that TI experts work within a white supremacist foundation. So they're always really, really hamstrung if they are a genuine DEI efforts actually involved. Um, and they had all these like team meetings and meetings with the, with the different girls to kind of talk about it, process it, et cetera. But, but she was allowed to remain on the team and she was not penalized in any way. So all of this happened kind of behind closed doors uh, in last fall. And then in January, um, people sort of find it was announced that Alexis Jeffries was transferring to LSU. And that seemed to have been the real big thing that sparked uh, the, the team that the team members to get really, really upset. I mean, they were already upset, but to really get upset and to start speaking publicly about it because they were like, does this team even know what's going on? She's going to harm more people um, on the other team. We're just passing her along. You know, we've seen this in many, many, many abuse cases of people, of people who are enacting harm, who are being passed along. Um, and what happened is that um, a couple of the UCLA uh, gym, remaining gymnasts were so frustrated at the fact that their concerns were not being addressed and that they were not being um, appropriately talked to that a couple of them started tweeting at the athletic director. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them tweeting, you know, you have not responded from my email to my email, can you please respond to it? Like the fact that we have gymnasts that are resorting to like, please on Twitter is really, really significant. And that's when it, I mean, people were talking about, but that's when kind of the seal really broke on the whole thing. Um, and other people have talked about this, uh, really analyzed it far better than I, I have. Uh, for example, a friend of the podcast, uh, Letitia Brown, uh, wrote a piece about it on First to Pen that we will absolutely link in the show notes. And a couple of things that, that um, she said that I wanted to highlight is that um, she said, quote, common language such as uh, Jeffrey's um, excuse that, quote, this is how I was raised. Uh, Letitia said this kind of common language is something that people use to distance themselves from behaviors they know to be wrong without act actually acknowledging any wrongdoing. And she Letitia ended the piece by near the end of the piece said, quote, what are black folks to do when we experience racism, anti-blackness and other targeted forms of harassment? And this is absolutely the thing. And, you know, it seems that some of the other uh, non-black teammates have um, stood by them and have helped bring this issue to the fore. Um, but, you know, another thing is Jeffrey also said that uh, essentially threatened the teammates that if they were to do anything about it, that she might harm herself kind of throwing this whole mental issue thing in, in, in the teammates' faces. So it's just like multiple waves of, you know, the, the instru instrumentalization of mental, of mental health and kind of mental health is sort of an excuse for racism, um, but obviously like multiple incidences, instances of anti-Black racism, and it's just really, really disgusting. And so full solidarity to all of the remaining Black teammates, uh, full solidarity to any Black teammates in the LSU team who might have to deal with this now. I mean, that's, I think, another, um, another really awful thing to come out of this. Um, and I think, and this is something I've said on Twitter and talked to the guys about, but what we're really seeing from these black gymnasts is we're seeing really more outspoken activism than we're really seeing in any college sport right now. I mean, the fact that they are openly talking on Twitter and, and going on podcasts to detail these things as, as they're happening, right? They're not saying, you know, we can't comment. It's under mm -hmm. investigation. They are using the tools at their disposal to spread this news and to seek out solidarity and support. And I think that's amazing. 
I wish they didn't have to do that. Um, I wish they were not suffering under this racist um, program, but um, I mean, all the solidarity to them and what they're doing is really amazing and impressive. That, re- that really, it really says a lot. The fact that folks had to reach, had, had to go and use Twitter as the tool mm-hmm. for actually communicating with folks that are, by definition, being paid large amounts of money to protect these athletes, right? Like the fact that that you can't get an uh, an email reply from mm-hmm. your, the athletic director tells you quite literally, like it, for in this case particularly, when it's an issue of racism that you've identified, it, it speaks volumes about. I I think the NCAA broadly, but this program very specifically in terms of of who who they are protecting and and I agree that piece by Letitia it was incredible for 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 contextualizing all this and and making everyone every reader understand like <clears throat> who is protecting the these folks and how are um are, are people who are supposed to be put in authority positions how what can we do when those people ultimately fail as they continuously do, as they continue to, to fail? And this is, uh, I agree completely in terms of the, this highlights how horrible UCLA gymnastics is, generally speaking. And it's, it's shocking. It was shocking when I saw these, I remember when I saw these first tweets, when I, when Johanna, you, you forwarded me some of these tweets, I was like floored. I couldn't believe that athletes had to resort to that. But I also simultaneously, I was like, wow, athletes are using mm-hmm. this power. Like mm-hmm. athletes have this, th- th- this, mm-hmm. this form of agency. So it's like this duality. Nathan, I, I, did yeah, you want to well, there's Yeah, there's, there's agency there, but also I think it, it underlines how important it is for athletes to have formal mechanisms yes. that allow mm-hmm. them to confront these kind of conditions, right? I mean, they're, they're basically, like, let's, think, let's imagine this. What happened if none of these athletes had a particularly public platform, right? Because, I mean, this could be mm-hmm. like UCLA Gymnastics yeah. is a very prominent program in the world. And a lot of these gymnasts, I think, have um, have quite prominent profiles. But, like, this could be happening at a program, you know, in like a, an R2 school, um, anywhere in the country, you know, low Division One, Division Two, And then no one's paying attention to the athletes yeah, right. in that context. How do they connect with the world? How do they share their story? Um, so, like, of course, we should be lauding people for, as you put it, like the agency and the ingenuity to to use the resources available um, so proactively to highlight the harm that they're experiencing. Right. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's like nothing but a credit to the individuals involved, but it also underlines and highlights why athletes need to be unionized. They need yeah, to be represented. Right. They need to have formal channels. To yeah. challenge all forms of abuse that they experience in the course of their athletic labor, mm-hmm. um, and sometimes that abuse is, you know, like the kinds of coercion we often talk about in terms of overtraining, um, mm-hmm. you know, verbal and physical abuse by coaches trying to extract performance. But sometimes mm-hmm. that has to do with racism, right? Sometimes that has to do right. with other forms of harassment, sexual violence, which we know is mm-hmm. rampant on our campuses as well. Um, you know, the myriad cases testifying to that, right? And all of these things can be addressed. I'm not trying to say this like a panacea. And, and, yeah, and of course. Of unionization course. itself, right? It requires, yeah. it's just, it's just an architecture. And then within yeah. that architecture, you need to have 
um, very active organization, build union structure, build union power. I mean, like, mm -hmm. there's a lot of steps to this. It's not, it's not a, a cure, an easy cure-all, but there's no architecture whatsoever right now, right? right. There's no yeah. system through which athletes can defend themselves, and it's just, it's needed, right? Yeah, this, is, this is the corollary of, of treating, I, I think, one of the corollaries of um, Jennifer Abruzzo's treat uh, a memo to treat these uh, athletes as employees because once you're treated as employees like okay, a lot of people talk about compensation okay great wonderful they, their compensation rights can be dealt with but i think more profoundly their employment rights they would ha have many employment rights and these formal channels that you're speaking to open up when that happens so yes unionization but also recognition and acknowledgement that they're employees in front of the the legal system as well i think that's that's important and i don't i'm not trying to like disagree or anything we completely agree on that yeah. uh, just to add that kind of point that like that's what is at stake with with things that are happening at the national labor relations board like i i think that that's one of the under or overlooked not under overlooked things um corollaries of, of that push to have athletes treated as employees in front of the law that's right because we we can't at the end of the day right and you, i think you put this very well derek like the compensation issues are at the forefront um but at the end of the day if we do not understand this as an employment relationship then mm -hmm. what we are thinking of is like a much more of a paternalistic model, yeah. right? Yep. Mm -hmm. These are students at a university, and this university is caring for and nurturing their students. But guess what? They aren't, right? I no. mean, the <laughs> evidence is everywhere that the yeah. universities care infinitely more about performance imperatives when it comes to sport, which means that the interests of the putative students, <laughs> who are athletic workers, as we, as we constantly highlight, right? But like, they're treated, they're students on the one hand, they're right, they have the rights of students and the responsibilities of workers. Mm -hmm. um, and that's a conflict of interest within the institution. Yeah. And we see it over and over and over again. And we simply cannot rely on the benevolence of these institutions. They will allow right. sexual predators to thrive and flourish for decades yeah. if you allow them to. If you don't hold them accountable, that's what happens internally in these institutions. It happens again and again and again, right? And I mean, there's, we don't need to play the same game over and over again. We know the outcome. Yep. Something has to change. The system has to change. And it's not just an economic question. That's what we're trying to highlight here, right? It's not just an economic question, which is why, although when it comes to like economic exploitation, I think it matters to make distinctions between college football and so forth in terms of what's going on and where, how value is coming and being distributed. But when it comes to health, safety, working conditions, right? Abuse. Yeah. We can leave that revenue question aside yeah. and think about the fact that all of these students, but also workers are being subjected to tremendous amounts of harm and we need to address it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and just, I just had a kind of few more points to bounce off what you all are saying. I mean, one of the, one of the arguments that a lot of um, people have been making again, a lot of the arguments that people have been making in favor of like strengthening name image likeness legislation and against unionization is that this ridiculous argument that if we, if we start to, if universities are forced to categorize athletes as employees, that, that there go the Olympic sports, right? Then like, you know, then, then we're not going to have Olympic athletes and there's our pipeline uh, to produce, to helping produce Olympic athletes that compete all over the world for different nations, not just the U.S. But again, that's totally prioritizing Olympic success 
over any kind of yeah. health and harm, which is such a ridiculous argument. It is such a BS argument. And it's really disgusting that people are making that. Um, because again, like we've seen this, and I think this is where, you know, maybe we're seeing more activism within gymnastics is because of the horrific sexual abuse that's gone on. And the fact that all these, all these Olympic champions were sexually abused and harmed. And therefore, I think gymnasts seem to be more, because of their experience and because of, you know, the lawsuit against Larry Nasser and, you know, all the other people, right? It's not just him, all the other people, the Carolis, the whole USA Gymnastics Board, all of them, you know, colluding with the FBI, right? They see things more clearly because of these experiences of harm than I think athletes and other sports do. And moreover, um, they, the gymnastics fan base is, is, is huge, is real. I mean, there's a reason why our gymnastics episodes do so well, because there's such a dedicated <laughs> pool of gymnastics fans, like on the gym internet, you know, who pay attention to these things. And they are very outspoken in their support of athletes rights because they care about their athletes. Whereas I don't think we see the kind of care and concern for from fans for athletes and other sports. I mean, mm -hmm. we'd have to do sort of a, you know, qualitative and quantitative comparison, but like, I just don't see it in the same way. And I think because of these experiences, they spotlight this abuse and harm more readily. Um, and I think that's, I think that's why we're seeing a lot more activism. Um, yeah, go ahead, Derek. Yeah. One of the, th one of the things that I, that I think there's a lot wrong with that approach to to nil i obviously we've talked about yeah. it at, but but i i think the point the profound point here is that we are privileging the olympics and the olympics are happening right mm -hmm. now and the the olympics are incredibly harmful they always have been they i would argue it's fundamental to the olympic sport to elite olympic sport that harm is the project it's not a latent we've we've talked about this on the show it's not this latent manifestation or uh, indirect consequence of elite olympic sports it is a it is the project of elite sport is is harm um bodily harm corporeal harm physical harm uh, mental harm all emotional harm and we're, we've seen so many examples so that discourse i think that's a really nuanced argument that is missing from the discourse mm -hmm. when people say oh it's going to ruin olympic sports as if we should be promoting that as the uh, alternative and i know that causes a lot of people like um tension kind of visceral tension when they like to watch they like to turn on the olympics and and see it every four years but like i don't know about you all but i can't even turn on the olympics like my over the last three, four years, my entire approach to Olympic sport has completely changed. Folks like Mac Ross, Jules Boykoff, um, Johnny Coleman over at No Olympics, like just listening to to all of the corollaries of Olympic Games that like you you you've heard about, you've known about, but like putting all out there laid out to bear to to highlight how much harm the Olympics the Olympic system juggernaut mega event does it's, it's fundamentally changed a relationship um, that, that I've had to that particular thing. And that's really, I think uh, when we're upholding the Olympics as this thing that we should be like, like we should not ruin any chances for anyone to go to the Olympics, all of these things mm -hmm. that misses that, that whole thing. 
that the Olympics are inherently harmful. We've got countries injecting folks with, with drugs, with life-altering drugs. We've got um, the forced displacement of uh, marginalized folks in every country. And it doesn't matter what country the Olympics go to. We've got uh, environmental just decay and complete destruction happening um, in in Beijing right now. They're like, they, there's a, a water crisis and they're they're making ice. They're making all of the snow for some of their events, even though mm. there's like a shortage of water. Um, mm. And these things like just people ignore when they make that argument. So I just want to like emphasize that mm. um, and also highlight that like, I literally can't even watch these Olympics for the most part. Just jumping back to something that Johanna was saying, um, I think that's a really astute observation about the relationship between fans and athletes and harm in the context of gymnastics. You know, because it has been my own contention, sort of that, that was the, the work that I've done on social reproduction and sport, right? Part of the premise there is that because there's a weird relationship that occurs between the fan and the athlete, right? And that the, the fan receives something from the labor of the athlete, mm -hmm. and that can create a kind of alienated relationship between those two figures, athlete and fan, um, in a way that I think, you know, allows for the dehumanization and harm that occurs for athletes um, and the, their, the commodification of their bodies um, and the instrumentalization of their bodies. Uh, and you know, I've posited in the past that one thing, obviously these are all occurring within capitalist structures that, um, you know, we can't just change because we feel like it. Um, but operate, even operating within those structures, you know, I've posited that one avenue to challenge this sort of arrangement is more solidarity between mm -hmm. the fan and the athlete, right? This sense that rather than being kind of like, other than what fantasy sport invites us to do, mm -hmm. which is to like become, when I say we, I mean the fan, to become the manager in that sense, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. To take on the role of Of an boss. abstraction too. Yeah. Right, so there's an abstraction of who the athlete is because they become like a kind of number in a way. There's like this quantification of who they are. Um, but at the same time, like much like actual general managers who treat athletes as numbers, right? Yep. Like that, that's what you do as well. Yeah. And that distances you and divorces you from their humanity in a way. And, and also like, I, I mean, it's so simple, but like how the sausage is made, that, that's really the way to characterize it, right? Because it's like yeah. people like the finished product. They enjoy the finished product, but they don't want to see what goes into it, right? Because that detracts from the ability to find pleasure in these, in these enterprises. But all of this is to say, gymnastics does seem to be this example where because of this um, ex extreme, let me put it this way, this really extreme form of trauma that has experienced in the context of this sport and, and the sort of the spectacle that has emerged around that trauma, I think you're rightly pointing to the fact that a huge portion of the fan base embraces athletes in terms of their humanity. Um, and that means that there is more discursive space around the sport to challenge forms of harm like this one, right? Like that, that, that we were talking earlier about the agency these athletes demonstrated and questioning, talking about, we, you know, I was making points about their profile and so forth, but really there's, there's space to do it, right? Like mm -hmm. instead of going online, like these, a few college football players have done recently at schools like Penn State and Ohio State. Yeah. 
And what usually happens when those college football players come out is that they get a tremendous amount of backlash, backlash right. from fans and other players and so forth, right? Because they're supposed to be silent about the coercive conditions in those sports. But it makes a huge difference if you can speak and be embraced by the people in your community, right? Yeah. That, that gives strength. That's what solidarity is about. It's about, solid, it's about strength in numbers to ultimately resist and leverage that numerical power to create better conditions, you know? So I just, I, I do think that you were absolutely on the nose to highlight that. And I hadn't really been thinking of it in those terms, but this is like a very rare example, mm -hmm. I would say, in the world of high-performance spectator sport, mm -hmm. where we see the potential for something different. And we don't have the, we don't see the, sort of the end point here. I don't know where this all goes. It's all unfolding in front of us right now. But I, I think that we, you're absolutely right to, you know, celebrate the players. And also I want to, I want to celebrate gymnastics fans. Um, in this yeah. moment because, you know, we're often really hard on fans, but the way that they have championed the athletes yeah. that they care about, you know, that, that's a model for, for fandom in sports. Right. Yeah, I was, I was sort of thinking, you know, I know there are like random examples, like when we had Kira McCormick on, mm -hmm. when she was talking about the abuse of Bob Barada, um, who has recently been sentenced, I think. Yeah. I don't remember the details. Um, but she talked about how when news broke of his harassment, that similarly the fans, the, the fan club for the Vancouver White, uh, Whitecaps played a pretty instrumental role in like showing like they, I think the fan club got in contact with players or like former players. And they actually made a statement at one of the games where like, I can't remember if they left at halftime or maybe, I, I don't remember what it was, Derek, you may remember more than me because that, that case is so complex, but it was sort mm -hmm. of similar where like, they were like, this is enough. Like we are fans yeah. of this team, yeah. this team, we support the women. This is BS. Um, but again, like these cases are so, so rare because you're right, Ethan, like the abuse that athletes face when they say anything negative is just horrendous. Um, and I think too, you know, I think the fact that um, Amanda Seals, who is a major, major cultural figure she's a comedian she's an actress she's huge um she seems to have like a, a connection with some of the athletes um all previous prior to this so i think that plays a role um and so she gave them a platform right so i think you know connections like not only fan base but also connections to maybe really high high powered cultural figures who support athletes rights and who support athletes health and are not just like hoorah we're fans we're going to go to the game we're going to go to the men the meat and sort of stand on the sidelines and sort of make a, you know, make it a big media spectacle at the, at the, at the fact that I'm at a game or whatever. Um, but you're, I mean, you're right. And I, I think, I think that's something that we need to highlight more. Um, and, and sorry, go ahead, Nathan. Well, no, I, I think that there is something to the fact we've kind of gestured to this before. Um, and you can't draw the broadest possible strokes, you know, like, like a conversation like this, obviously there's like a, a temptation to, mm. to speak in generalities, which I'm about to do. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I just want to provide the caveat that of course, like there's complexity and nuance to it. Um, but like, no, I think there's something to the fact that in women's sport more mm. broadly, we see mm -hmm. more of this solidarity. And I yeah. think, I mean, I'm postulating here. I think that there's, that's a function in part of the fact that fans and athletes are in it together in terms mm -hmm. of building these sports, right? Yeah. Because there's such structural um, obstacles to, you know, just like the flourishing, basically, of women's sports. Um, the refusal to broadcast, to cover, to celebrate yeah. means that, to even have these sports as a, as an existent thing to participate in and watch, um, that takes a fight 
basically. Mm-hmm. And, and players and fans are in that fight together for the most part. You know, again, I'm generalizing, but uh, I, it's not, uh, therefore, like, it makes sense to me that we would see mm-hmm. these, you know, most um, encouraging examples in women, like, you, as you said, the Kier McCormick example, um, and now here in the context of, um, of gymnastics. And let's, let's, let's be really um, blunt about this. We can juxtapose this against what's been happening in, for instance, uh, men's college football. Yeah. yeah. At Iowa. That's exactly yeah. right. Right. I mean, at Iowa, we had yeah. a, a, an independent legal investigation. So-called into, independent. Well, this is the thing. Right. <laughs> racism in that program. The results of that investigation overwhelmingly revealed, for what we know, revealed that, that, that there was like a, a deeply racist culture in the mm-hmm. Iowa football program. The, the institution semi-acknowledged that. Right? They, they wouldn't really take responsibility in explicit terms for it, as Jesse Washington has beautifully laid out in Pieces in the Undefeated. Um, but they did acknowledge that there were fundamental problems with racism in that program. And yet, okay, like in the aftermath of that report, one of the things that they had to do was they produced a, a, a kind of diversity committee comprised of former black players that was meant to hold the program, Iowa football, accountable for, you know, issues around racism moving forward, right? Well, head coach Kirk Ferentz just got a massive new, like something like seven-year, many-million-dollar contract, and immediately upon signing that contract, he folded that committee, which had been very harsh in holding him accountable recently, too. They, they had been trying in advance of the, the sort of the folding of that committee. They'd been trying to push to meet more. And, and Ferentz's attitude was essentially like, oh, during the season? Are you kidding me? Like, we don't have time for this. Um, and the committee was like, no, we, we have to meet, right? This, these are exactly the issues. You have to take this seriously. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the more pushback he got, um, obviously that led to him folding the committee altogether, right? There's a lawsuit right now that is trying to hold the university accountable for the experiences that black players had at Iowa. Um, and in the context of that lawsuit, the institution has decided that this, this investigation that occurred, right? So, of, of course, the lawsuit wants to see the results of that investigation, right? Because they interviewed tons of people in the program. Mm-hmm. And so they have all kinds of testimony and evidence, essentially, about what happened in the program. There's no better evidence that exists currently to what happened at Iowa than this legal investigation that talked to most of the people involved in the program over a period of time. And that, pro, that, that report was summarized, right? There was like an executive summary that was released and reported upon, but that's not giving us all the testimony that went into it, right? So who knows mm-hmm. what's really there. And yet now the university is refusing to reveal the results of that investigation to the lawsuit and publicly because they are claiming attorney-client privilege. But if there's attorney-client privilege, that means it's not an investigation. That's, that's not an independent investigation at all. Yeah. Right? It's uh-huh. on behalf of the university, which means that they lied to the public in claiming that it was an in- independent investigation. Yeah. So they're having their cake, they're eating it too. It's pretty sick. Yeah. And then on top of that, when you see reporting on this issue from the undefeated, like I said, from local Iowa uh, coverage, and some, some people do good, really good work in Iowa that are trying to make sure that they kind of keep following this story. But I mean, look at the backlash online. Mm-hmm. It's like all pro-Iowa, a complete indictment of the players who have already gone through so much, right? It's exactly the opposite of what what you're talking about in terms of like the the UCLA gymnastics context. Um, Mm -hmm. And and that to me is like, that testifies to what we see in so many places across the country. And and I also wanted to highlight it because like we we need to be thinking about, 
people need to have their eyes on Iowa right now mm-hmm. because they are hoping that the national media doesn't pay attention. And if the national media doesn't pay attention, what Iowa is proving right now, I mean, if holding that committee, re, um, renewing the contract of their head coach, um, by the way, whose son is still employed on that coaching staff is what I mean, was one of the principal figures mm-hmm. in this investigation. Okay. Um, yeah, nothing's changing at Iowa. No. And it won't change unless people try to hold them accountable. Yeah. yeah and pointing to that, like, differences in discursive space, I, I think that that's a useful concept here. Understanding how folks, um, how discourse can actually change things. And you're completely spot on, like, in terms of people have to pay attention to Iowa. Because if if we don't, this will become the entire thing. Of course, Iowa is already performative in their claims for equity, diversity, and inclusion. This whole thing is is a perfect example of what Tuck and Yang might might say decolonization is a metaphor or like DEI work is, is a metaphor. It's a performance. It's something that people say and then don't actually enact. And this is a perfect example. Here, let's create a committee. Oh, let's talk about things a lot. Let's create, maybe we'll write a report. Oh, uh, you, the committee's saying things that I don't really like. Let's end the committee. Um, and it's not really it's not really doing what it needs to be doing. So we'll end that committee. And that just shows you how performative um, this stuff can be. And in, when you marry... Um, when you marry these things with a college football program that is fundamentally constructed around racial capitalism and exploitation of um, black and brown folks, that is, uh, it's almost an impossibility to even start the conversation about equity, diversity, and inclusion. Go ahead, Nathan. Yeah, this is what, this is what Jesse Washington wrote. And I think it, it speaks exactly to what you're saying, Derek, in that piece he wrote, I would soon realize that overall, Iowa is willing to admit that players perceived racial problems within Mm. the football program. (laughs) Iowa is acknowledging what the players say happened to them. But Iowa is not ready to talk about what Iowa did to them. Right? And that's that's it. That's the difference. Mm. I'm sorry for how I made you feel. I hate, I despise that. I despise people saying that because it is so opposite of what like an apology or an acknowledgement should actually be. And you're, you're completely right. That is exactly what I'm kind of talking about here in terms of, of like the performance of it. Uh, Yeah. Like, I'm sorry if what, if what you perceive what I said was racist, like that is such bullshit. Look at this. He goes on in this piece. Iowa commissioned the Hush Blackwell Law Firm, which works with many NCAA athletic departments, to interview players and coaches. The firm's report verified that many black athletes and some coaches and white players said black athletes were treated unfairly due to their race, which is the definition of racism, writes Washington. But the university did not ask Hush Blackwell to determine whether the descriptions of racism were true, only to collect and summarize the stories. Specific allegations against several staff members of what the report called mistreatment were not included in the public report, but confidentially handed over to the university and kept sealed. The report concluded that the program's rules perpetuated racial or cultural biases. And then he goes on, when a system of rules perpetuates racial biases, that is the definition of systemic racism. Mm -hmm. Iowa's system of rules was created and enforced by coaches. 
Yet the wording of the report gives the impression that the rules created themselves. I mean, I just, I, I actually think this is a brilliant article because yeah. it gets right at the heart of the, the exact games that you were talking about, Derek. The exact mm-hmm. games that are played around diversity, inclusion, and account, games around accountability yeah. as well, right? Like the institution has institutional expertise in how to be accountable without being accountable, right? Mm-hmm. To perform accountability but not in any way offer reparations because that's the real issue here. If there was systemic racism in the Iowa football program, Iowa must compensate the people who were harmed, Mm -hmm. right? Because they benefited from that. Mm -hmm. And that's what this lawsuit is about, right? And that's why I really admire the lawsuit that's been brought against the institution for this reason, seeking damages Mm -hmm. for players. That is not a frivolous lawsuit. That is like the least frivolous lawsuit actually in the history of civil lawsuits because you are trying to hold an institution accountable for its claims about about producing a space where people are in any way safe from racism. And instead, you subject them to racist harm, right? So you owe them something as a consequence of that. You as an institution owe them something. And yet they're completely refusing to take responsibility, right? And I think that Washington puts it perfectly. I'm so I, I'm sad to say that this case had receded from my memory because there are so many effing cases mm. of mm. racism, sexual abuse, all of these things that it's just like overwhelming to keep up with them. And, you know, you can to kind of go back to something that you started with, you know, if some of the you know, I have not been paying attention to this. So you two can speak more confidently to this than I can. But, you know, like if like in mass, like current black uh football players at iowa were to start like tweeting and sort of saying like athletic director such and such like why is this being addressed this way respond to my emails da, 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 da. like again like you know the like racial abuse that they would face would just be mm-hmm. unimaginable you know to the point of just like such severe harm that like yeah i could see why a player would be like it might not be worth it right because like this is just going to be too terrible. And they may go after my family, right? They may go after all of these other things. Um, so I'm, I'm really glad that you brought that up and, and really compared it because it just, it's just awful. It's just, yeah, it's just horrendous. And you have to live in that space. Like these athletes mm-hmm. live in that space with local communities. We often forget mm-hmm. though, the fan base, they, these folks are interacting in very real ways with their fan base wherever they go around campus. Uh, and we have to acknowledge that when folks speak out. We, we think about pressure. Oh, like people will talk in the, in the comment section. Yeah, that's one thing. But what happens when an athlete goes to the local chicken shop or goes to the local uh, Target or whatever and interacts with employees, with other people around? Like that's where things can also be, be really, really harmful as well. And, and I, I, I'm in agreement there. And, and just to put, maybe put a, 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 actually you had something, Nathan, if you want yeah, to. No, I, I want to, I'm going to completely, I want to completely switch gears now. Yeah. That's what oh, I'm wait, can there's I mention no, one no thing? Oh, yeah, Go ahead. Do it, do it. Yeah. The one thing I would mention is that we cannot forget this is in the same state that signed, the governor signed one of the first supposed anti-CRT bills. Yeah. Right. I, I, we cannot underestimate this to kind of go Absolutely. back to Derek, your point about they live in these communities. Yeah, they sure as heck live in these communities that are mm-hmm. trying to entrench essentially like even even more than it already is. 
anti-Black narratives within their education, that, that they're indoctrinating people through the education system to teach people that um, all, you know, that, that anything related to race is totally off limits because it might make white people feel bad. Right. So like it's not only that these athletes are playing there, they are being exploited, but they're also surrounded by people who believe these things, um, which we, we don't we don't always make the connection, I think, between the anti CRT stuff uh, from the GOP and kind of the fact that the athletes are working and playing and, and, and supposedly learning. I mean, not supposedly on behalf of the athletes. Right. But they're not getting the, the, the free and equitable education they deserve. And then they have to live in these environments. Yeah. yeah, the final thing I'll say on this is that, and this is not, uh, it's not disconnected from what you're saying here and what we've talked about, is just as decolonization is about land back and don't begin the conversation unless you're beginning there, um, issues of racial injustice is about reparation. And if you're not willing to do actions to put put words and to put words aside and put actions and money and um, reparations ahead of that, you're not doing the work. You're simply, you're performing. You're simply, you're staying in the metaphorical sense. And all of these things are intended anti-CRT, um, the, the, the various laws, the ways in which people set up committees and do these fake mm. independent investigations are all ways to avoid doing action. They're all part of the same structure to mm. keep status quo, to keep it in the performative sense. They'll do their statements. They'll put it on social media, um, their, their statements of solidarity and understand, or maybe they've done something wrong and they'll apologize for the way some, they made somebody feel, but it's all to avoid doing the work. And that's mm -hmm. what we on this podcast and in general, in, in sports media, sports scholarship, we need to push on all of our institutions to do the work. Yeah. Yeah. And just sorry, I know Nathan, you're waiting to take us on a different track. I mean, I, I think what this points to is sort of like what questions and what do these situations force perspective athletes to think about in terms of when they're looking at schools to go to to play for sports for their college, right? Do you go to states like Iowa, Florida, Texas, many, many other states that have these laws on the books or is really in a state that's really trying hard to get these laws in the books, such as Pennsylvania, where I live, such as, I mean, Virginia, where I'm from, you know, legislation's trying to be, I think it's already been, I can't remember if it's been passed or trying to be passed. Um, but right. Or do you go to a state like California, which doesn't have this kind of law, but then still racism flourishes, right? You know, which yeah. is such like a lose-lose situation. And then I, you know, I know athletes have a myriad of factors that they consider. Um, and, and certainly minoritized athletes have, have to have to kind of think even more things. And for example, a white athlete such as myself had to think about but I, you know, when we're sort of cheering when athletes go to different schools, I mean, I think about what kind of education are they going to be allowed to give? Are they going to be allowed to speak their voices in class? Probably not. Right. Um, and I, you know, I, I think I think we need to kind of think more more about the connection between the kind of political educational indoctrination that might be going on even more so than before in certain states compared to what they might be getting in other states. Okay, so I, I want to switch now to something. We'll use the last little bit of the show today mm -hmm. to talk about um, television a little bit. Um, and not just, not just live sports on TV, but um, I finally got the chance to, to almost entirely watch the, the, the 
the narrative sensation Ted Lasso um, yeah. for the uh. first time. And so I, I kind of wanted to, to, to talk with you two, because I know both of you have watched it previously. Um, given, here, let me, let me preface it this way. Because I had not watched it before, I have largely been immune to discourse around it. Um, it's sort of, you know, it's been on my radar. I'm aware of it, but like I haven't dived into it because, you know, I didn't have the context for it, basically. Um, but it's pretty clear that a huge part of the appeal of this show for people, like potentially for our audience, is that it's looking at, you know, high-performance spectator sport culture in a way that is far more nuanced than like a mainstream perspective. And certainly when it comes to questions around like abuse of coaching, mm -hmm. right. And harm yeah. and masculinity, it's interrogating these questions. Like it's, it's, it's not just straight up reproducing hegemonic masculinity and like, you know, performance imperatives in sport. Obviously that's not the project of the show. And so I think it's a interesting to talk about because, um, I did find the series, neither Derek or Johanna knows what I have to say about this at all. They, don't, they have no idea what my opinion <laughs> it's is right a, now. It's a mystery. So, uh, <laughs> uh, I find it charming. I find it charming. Um, I was expecting to dislike it much more than I have. Mm -hmm. um, I laugh a lot. I, I have found it to be funny. Um, but I think that there are also things that we can raise questions about. So. Um, I'm curious what you both think, and then I, and then I have more to add. But I, what, what do you both think about Ted Lasso? Joanna, go ahead. Um, I'm similar. Like I've I've seen almost all of it. I still have a few episodes of the second season uh, to watch. But I, I mean, I blew through um, season one and most of season two, and enjoyed a lot of it. But the I have two issues with it. One is like the, the celebration of Ted Lasso as a figure. Like you said, I think he shows a different way to coach, which I think is, is entirely possible. And I, I hope that there are coaches out there that do that do kind of some of the stuff that he does that's that's you know lifting up athletes and stuff like that. But I don't think that's the norm for coaches. And so I fear that all of the praise for the show has reinforced the whole like sports are inherently good mm. and this is how it is. And therefore kind of we're done asking questions about sports. I guess I see that I see it kind of being used in that way. And I see a lot of people who don't have, who, who are experts in other fields who don't have so much expertise in sports stuff, um, which is fine because we all have different areas of expertise, but who are, who are not critical about Ted Lasso. And I think that's one thing that bothers me. Um, there was something else. There was something else that bothers well, me. Getting, that yeah, I'm, we'll get into the questions of, I think there's a lot to be said about the questions of masculinity in the show um, mm -hmm. in yeah. terms of how it's represented. And, and I think mm -hmm. it's actually an interesting conversation because there's sort of multiple masculinities on display. Mm -hmm. um, and so there is, I think that this is like a classic sort of semiotic question in, in part in terms yeah. of, um, what are the signposts in the show in terms of how we should appreciate and understand masculinity? And at the same time, what is the cultural context in which these signs are circulating? 
And so what is the impact that it has, right? I mean, just not to go on a massive digression here, but like one thing that absolutely drove me out of my mind about the show Breaking Bad, which I felt is maybe the most un- overrated television series of all time. I think I agree that, with that. Like the show itself, I think that I might credit the creator as like, perhaps they're imagining in Breaking Bad that they are critiquing masculinity to an extent. Mm-hmm. But like the way that that show was taken up in popular culture was essentially like, pure fetishization, right? Like yeah. the, the figure becomes a hero figure and people are just emulating the hero figure. And so <laughs> if the it's show is trying disgusting. to expose harm, it's actually just mm-hmm. reproducing harm. And I'm sorry, but you make like six or seven seasons of your show and you just double and triple and quadruple down on that. Like yeah. you're buying it. You're, you're, you're going all the way, right? Like you're ignoring the context and what your work does in the world. You, your work as, a, as an artist circulates in a world and I think you should be accountable for that in some way, right? And you should be cognizant of that in terms of how you perform your art. So when we're talking about Ted Lasso and questions of masculinity, I think that's a very relevant point, mm-hmm. right? Because in the sports world, if you have any viewers, like it's what's kind of interesting about what you're saying, Johanna, is it's like if the audience for Ted Lasso is a non-sports audience, that's a really different question than if it's a sports audience. Because if it's a non-sports audience, the way in which masculinity is dramatized in the show um, is less vulnerable, I think, to like uh, the kind of conventional sort of hegemonic masculinity that, that circulates in sporting cultures. Um, but if it's sports fans who are watching it, then it gets a li- read a little bit differently as well, right? Especially a figure like Roy Kent. Like that's the, who... Yeah. I mean, here, I'll just put what I think, and you may disagree with me, and that's good. To me, what they're imagining they're doing with a figure like Roy Kent is that, like, he reads as conventional hegemonic masculinity on the surface, right? But then, like, he's kind of going through a journey in the show of um, unraveling some of that traditional masculinity. And, like, so what you get simultaneously is, like, the package of that, like, macho man but who's like evincing behaviors that are not in line with that package entirely, at least, or like contradicted at times, which has a tremendous appeal often, right? Because like we are socialized to sort of like, I mean, like in, a, in our dominant, in our hegemonic sex gender system, like we're, we're socialized to see, to associate those masculine characteristics as a kind of like virtue to see in men. I'm not trying to say that like it is, right? This is like mm-hmm. me trying to say the system through popular culture and so forth has conditioned most people to see some virtue in conventional masculinity. But then as a critical audience, right, which I think Ted Lasso has, there's also people feel via feminism, et cetera, like you want to really deconstruct that hegemonic masculinity and look for something very different. And so you can see both of those things occurring in the same person at one moment, which has an appeal. And I think that's like a seduction of the character. Mm -hmm. But... I think like one thing we might ask is to what extent is he actually deconstructing mm-hmm. hegemonic masculinity? And to what extent is he like largely reproducing it in ways that are pleasurable for the audience? Yeah. And, and like juxtapose um, the character of Roy Kent to the character of Jamie and their relations mm-hmm. and their um, sort of triangle of uh, heterosexual relationship tension and and that actually highlights, I think, the second point. Like those looking at that relationship actually highlights exactly what you're saying. And and critical folks can look into look at that and say, like, is it actually doing 
Like, is it actually deconstructing? Is it actually giving us new representations? Because I think in many ways, the Jamie character was particularly, um, I guess, um, open up for questions. Um, and I don't know if they like, if they made that character try to like be like a real life Jack Grealish, if they're sports fans, like it seems to be like that was almost modeled in that, in that way as this like, um, bad boy esque person, uh, toxic masculinity around relationships, all these, all these sorts of things. But to go back to Johanna's point, I, I actually earlier that she made was really interesting. And that was, um, it had to do with, um, had to do with the show and the consequences of the show to audience. And you also mentioned to audiences and you also mentioned this, Nathan. And I, and I think that this show, one of the, the problems I generally have is that, yes, it's like, it is a nuanced, it's a new take on coaching, but I, I think, and some of the discourse I'm seeing on, on Twitter is like coaches saying, look, like coaches who are currently coaching, mm. tweeting on like, look, coaches are good too. Like coaches yeah. aren't all harmful. And, and I worry about, I worry about mm -hmm. that discourse because yeah. this is so not the norm in coaching no. that actually it, it's a it's thought not, experiment. Exactly. It's, it's not, it's it, like, exactly. it's not, I agree. This is like, this show is magic realism. Yes. It literally it's, it's fake. doesn't exist yeah. at all. That's yeah. the, it's so you're right. If it's being appropriated to the end that says like some coaching is good. Yeah. Like, it is a fantasy scenario in which yeah. performance imperatives are irrelevant, where like nurturing athletes is the primary goal. Uh, it doesn't exist in high performance sport anywhere. So I, I completely agree. If it's being taken up in that way, that's like profoundly problematic. And to be quite frank, the people involved in the show should be articulating that publicly. Yes. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> because mm -hmm. that's dangerous. Yeah. 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 And, and let's go further along that line because I think that one of the problematic representations is the way in which ownership is represented, right? Because yeah. <laughs> let's forget about just the coaching yeah. staff, right? Like we have literal friendships that completely allied class dynamics, right? And like to the extent that we are not supposed to even like acknowledge the fact that we have these Billion, I don't know how wealthy they are because they don't yeah. name how wealthy they are, but they're, they're just like they're, billion, yeah. they're certainly telling us, yeah, at least many, many millionaires, yeah. if not more, right? Um, and they're just befriending people of all different mm -hmm. class positions. No one remarks upon these, sort of the material foundation of um, what they are able to do, and that complete erasure of class dynamics basically completely distorts the labor conditions and dynamics that actually exist in professional sport. So in a way that like, well, the coaching piece might be a fun fantasy and a thought experiment that like is not, is not even inherently harmful. Like it's pleasurable to indulge and we might learn something from it, but the complete erasure of class dynamics is actively harmful yeah. because mm -hmm. that world simply does not exist at all and it can't exist as constructed. And if we're imagining that professional sports or college sports, um, because he comes from a college sport background, right? That they, that they look anything like this, um, you know, it's a, it's a complete lie. And I think a show like this, if it has any kind of politics, which I think it like almost explicitly does and needs to have like that, cause that's the purpose of it. Mm -hmm. Right. 
there has to be some kind of acknowledgement here. And it's not enough to say that like, oh, the owner's husband was the bad guy. There are yeah. bad owners. Like I get it. There are bad owners. But like the badness of the owner isn't a personality quirk. Yeah. The badness mm-hmm, of the mm-hmm. owner is the fact that they are an owner yeah. <laughs> right. and that it's possible right. for them to be an owner. There isn't a good owner. You can't be. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And just kind of to, just to kind of go back to the Roy Kent and Jamie thing. And, and, and I think maybe this also relates to the comparison between the two owners, right? When you set up this dichotomy where you're trying to highlight like the worst of the worst to someone who is better, like why is Jamie what is being compared to Roy Kent? You know, like you're sort of setting yourself forward like anyone who's better than Jamie is better. And I'm like, why? Like Jamie is like the worst of the worst. Like the bar is so low for what is considered better masculine behavior mm-hmm. within sports that then like any, any kind of foil to Jamie is going to be presented as a hero because no one ever wants to actually admit that they're going to be Jamie. Just like no one ever wants to admit that they are going to be like the former male owner, right? So like when, when the foil is like the worst of the worst, the bar is incredibly low. And I think that's why for me, like the Roy Kent figure, like, I think he's cute, whatever. But like, he's so, he's so emotionally closed off. And I'm sorry, he's like a 40 year old man, 30 some year old man who's emotionally closed off. Like, why is this something that women should be told that they should aspire to, to, to find that kind of man attractive? And like, mm-hmm. women can, find, you know, feel free to find whoever you find attractive, okay? But like, it's again, that like romantic comedy thing of just yeah. like, well, women should change men. That's what we should shoot for. We should look for men who are going to be able to be changed because that's what we are here on this earth to do. And I'm sorry, like, some, if, if women, if you independently want to think that, fine. But like, that sets up women to do this enormous task that is our job to change the patriarchy that runs our world. Mm-hmm. And that sucks, mm-hmm. right? And I think that also sets up women to be, like, misused and abused. That Like, that is our task on this world. Um, and I just think... You know, I, I don't know. I just think that's really terrible. And like if women independently of all these ways we've been raised, if they on their own want to think that someone like him is attractive and someone like him is is a guy that they would like to be with and they would like to try to be with in an alternate reality. OK, but like if you compare this next to all of these like romantic comedies that like I was raised on in the 90s and the 2000s and 2010s, like he is the character. Maybe he's a little bit better, but not much. So, like, why can't we have a guy who is emotionally available and who's very in touch with his emotions and doesn't have to be shown by women that this is how they need to be? So I think that's just, like, a major issue, issue that I have with, with the Roy Kent figure, with Jamie. I know these people exist, but, like, the bar for what men should shoot to be and the bar for what women should shoot to be with if a woman is heterosexual and wants to be with or bisexual wants to be with a man, like that should Roy Kent figure should not be the bar, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Cultural artifacts are always going to be like, they're always going to have, I, I think, these underlying, they're always going to revert back to the norm because that's the sort of prepackaged system that we like. Like we can't, we almost can't understand a, a popular TV story, a TV series, unless they go back to some of these big tropes, unless they mm-hmm. revert back to the heterosexual relationship um, 
uh, uh, trope. Another trope, and this is a spoiler for if you haven't gone all the way to the end, so sorry, Johanna. The, <laughs> the, I think you've had time to, to review it, so no crazy spoilers now. <laughs> but um, the, the trope that they lead into the, ultimately to the end of the final season with like someone getting jealous of someone's prestige and power that they have and then becoming like the bad character the the one that's and then reverting to deceit and lying and backstabbing that's the same trope that like you kind of have to go to in cultural artifacts because it's what we expect it's what like we expect in our prepackaged entertainment right like theodore adorno wrote about all this stuff frankfurt school has written about this prepackaged society and like that's no matter what even if we are enamored by ted lasso the show and we think it's okay and we think it's like interesting and we're entertained and we laugh like Nathan, I think like popular cultural artifacts are always going to have these limitations um, because it's so conditioned and we, we are so conditioned to expect these prepackaged things. And if they don't, if they're not there, then Ted Lasso can't, exist because the fans won't watch it and the revenue won't come in and you won't see where the the story arcs go so it's a fundamental problem um i think in in culture in our in our cultural apparatus yes and all that said i just gotta say the funniest parts of the show roy kent's commentary on like the sky news set when he castigates the other uh, <laughs> members of the panel had me absolutely dying and also um when the the guys at the the supporters at the bar are watching Bake Off and mm. treating Bake Off the same way as a soccer game, that uh, yeah. that was amazing. <laughs> yeah, and you know there are some like anti-capitalist critiques in it, right? Like yeah. I, you know I I do think that's worth acknowledging. Um, I I didn't love I, I haven't watched all the way to the end, but I didn't love how they portrayed the like one black female character as like. Again, the therapist who's going to fix everybody, but she's also like a stern, seemingly a stern, unemotional black woman. And I didn't, I didn't love that. Um, I think like, if, I think the representation of black women as, as being in the mental health field is good because I think that's another kind of issue in, in our societies. But, you know, I, I feel like they made her seem this, yeah, the stern, cold, challenging black woman who is going to fix Ted Lasso and other people. and. I know that just seems a little bit problematic, but um, other people can speak to that better than I can. All right. Well, with that, folks, um, thanks so much for joining us. Um, please, if you have not yet done so, uh, could you please subscribe to the show on iTunes, etc. cetera. Uh, follow us on Twitter at end of sport pod. Uh, don't really bother following us on Instagram because that's a kind of a waste <laughs> of your time. Um, <laughs> but uh, in general, uh, support the show where you can. And uh, we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thanks so much. Mm-hmm.